start to understand the inputs people are putting into your system. And, and that's where taking a history of your client or taking a history of an athlete and looking externally versus internally at the weight room when assessing what is necessary in a cognitive phase to begin to learn a new task. The idea is that I want to develop this process where I evaluate my recovery in these different areas of my lifestyle. I figure out where are my biggest limitations, whether that's nutritional or sleep or the training side or whatever the case may be. And then I come up with an actual plan to, to address it and to fix it. It's really easy to start falling into those excuses. But what I'm trying to share with people is you can get the fuckets in either direction. You know what? I'm going all in. You have never done this before. See what happens. See what reward you get. See how it feels. Your joints can only handle so much, and there's a certain amount they can handle through your entire career. And the more you spare them early, the more that when you're actually strong and, and your joints are at risk, even with a full range of motion, the more sort of oomph you have left in you. Some people will, will kind of push back on these things, meaning you can reestablish a pattern by consciously reestablishing a pattern. You may also be able to reestablish a pattern by removing the barrier to the pattern. In this case, hey, you lack mobility here. If I just improve the mobility, it may actually change the sequencing. Um, what approach would you suggest people take? So given context for the listener, if, um, if I notice that I, I'm doing a, a movement and it looks relatively sloppy, it doesn't feel very stable, things that don't seem to be very well coordinated, Obviously, there, there's a few levels of approach, right? I can do thing over and over again. I can do it slowly and try to change the way I do it, or maybe even I could, um, you know, mobilize first in some way that loosens up some joint range that then changes the mechanics in itself. And, and maybe all of those exist. But I'd love to have you walk through, you know, someone who's, you know, hey, I, I maybe have the requisite mobility here, but uh, I'm not necessarily doing this thing correctly. At least what I would judge, or my trainer may judge, is correct. Yeah, and I think this is where we actually start to see uh, the format of skill acquisition over the course of a session or over the course of, say, a week or block of training be implemented isn't exactly what you're saying here, is understanding that if we do have requisite mobility, but what we're lacking is stability, uh, either stability um, in positions or strength in end ranges, what we'd want to do is we would want to find autonomous work thereafter to supplement that. So if I had if we talk about hip extension, which is a pretty common thing we see core positions adopted into hip extension, uh, hip hinge would be a better term for most people or deadlifting. See a lot of hip hinging and deadlifting movements um, fall heavily into a more anterior path or lumbar flexion or thoracic flexion. Well, what we would want to do is we would want to find um, a highly detailed gradient scale or exposure to extension at the hip where we're creating these perturbations or distal challenges. Now, this could come from external stabilization and it can even come from uh, finding isometric positions in which we want to get into and stabilizing from there so we could see someone who does have poor movement patterning in a hinge they could uh, mobilize glute they could mobilize the lat they could do whatever requisite mobility provides a like or greater stimulus to that person so training age is going to greatly affect the mobility chosen someone who works at a desk all day maybe a general population clientele probably won't need the, you know, the foam roller or the steel pipe to the low back to get them to move better. You know, they might need you know, a runner's lunch. They may need to lay in child's pose and tell you about their day for five minutes and kind of shed the weight of the day. And that might be the mobility requisite. For that. So we're almost looking for like an autonomic um, volume switch, right? Not on a dimmer switch. 
Exactly. Just trying to do that. And that's understanding, you know, where is the stimulus coming from this person and where they're prepared? Like you and I get to deal with such a, a large population of, of clientele and, and, a, and of friends knowing their backgrounds. I know that for me to adopt to end ranges and unstable positions, for yourself to adopt to end, range, end ranges and unstable positions, it's going to require a far greater stimulus than say my mom. You know, my mom might just need to get into a child's pose. She might just need to, you know, go for a five-minute walk, take greater stride lengths, you know, consciously breathe and stop thinking about her day, you know, throw sense on. And from your perspective, is that's um, tissue quality um, primary? What's the biggest influence? Tissue quality, is it autonomic arousal? Is it health of the system? Is it uh, accumulation of, of um, you know, some type of fibrotic tissue? Like what are all the variables that contribute there? Because I always want to try to quantify that, right? Because my brain goes to, I would like to return to the mobility and stability that I had when I was 16, 18 years old. And like, how do we then get, start getting rid of all of this, all of these variables, right? So it's it's the meditation, it's the yoga, it's, it's maybe the fibrotic, getting rid of the fibrotic tissue and the inflammation. I think, I think that's the thing is we start to look at stress and allostatic load as aggregate, right? And we start to understand the inputs people are putting into their system and and that's where taking a history of your client or taking a history of an athlete and looking externally versus internally at the weight room when assessing what is necessary in a cognitive phase to begin to learn a new task, right? And for most people, it's going to take a lot of variables to start to zero in on or We just have to find the easiest ones to control or the ones in which we get the greatest buy-in to control. So I think like an autonomic attenuation is the first thing that we look at. I think when we look at training age and sport of athlete, tissue tolerance and tissue quality becomes largely responsible as well. Yep. Um, and then underlying, you know, health considerations. So like dietary can be huge, right? Inflammatory diets, timing of eating, yeah. and all those things. But I think first and foremost, it's autonomic. It goes from, you know, what is this capacity? What is this person's capacity for stress in a physical and more often neurological? So do you build that into your course? Or do you build that into programs? Like something I started doing that's very uh, you know, unusual or atypical is like I'm very conscious of accessing both extremes of the autonomic nervous system. Like I'm trying to get super sympathetic, but I'm also trying to get super parasympathetic before. So workouts, I don't know if we did this when you're here, but workouts will often start with like, you know, some some bouncing and then which moves into shaking, which then moves into just almost like ecstatic movement sometimes they use some clubs that kind of like move things around just trying to loosen up and remove all the tone from places that exist in my body so it's not stretching per se but it's it's mobilizing actively and my brain goes to like i'm trying to alleviate tension i'm trying to um uh, increase blood flow i'm trying to increase viscosity of the joints i'm trying to just i'm, I'm literally picturing increasing the gaps the spaces between joints and allowing things to flow there it's been a pretty good, big difference maker in my ability to access uh, end range stability. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that should be included and uh, taken into account when looking at athletes with greater training ages and more uh, and greater sports history in contact. What are you trying to say, man? Trying to think that you know you're a high level athlete. <laughs> Try to call me an old bastard. Is that what this is? No, 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 no. Yeah, no. Just trying to fire up a little, but no, I think like we see that in track and field, right? We see that in explosive athletes. Like they will do a lot of, a lot of uh, warm up, like you said, totally, right? Like they'll bounce, they'll do A skips, B skips, hops, leg swings. They move dynamically, but we also look at the tissue quality of that athlete. And 
even in ligament and tendon, they're probably primed for that, you know, inherent quote unquote bounce. Right. And for yourself, for yourself, when you enter a gym, regardless of of what's actually going on, you know, front of mind and consciously, you spend years and years at a gym. I've spent years and years in a gym. Like I know when I put track spikes on or I know when I pick up a barbell, my intention and my mindset, regardless of its front of mind, changes completely. And I think when we look at these autonomic and even, you know, tonal kind of warm-ups for athletes, it comes from people who we start to disassociate a level of tension that could be unconscious in the athlete. And I think it pays I think it pays more of a benefit to people like yourself and you know, even people like myself than it would to the everyday person. I think that everyday person is coming in with with outside stress that will probably be decreased in 10 minutes of talking about their favorite TV show. And that could literally be the mobility for that person. Or putting on putting on a playlist they like. Like something I do in the cognitive phase of training, even for myself, and this kind of went viral during our lockdown, was the music I listen to when I train or the music I listen to when I move through things that are more proprioceptive. Like I'm not throwing, you know, Metallica on for the hip airplane. It's not necessary. I don't need to become hyped. You know what I mean? To do shoulder locates. Like I need to get into a position where I feel safe, where I feel relaxed, where my breathing is going to be. Picturing you like busting out some menu. Yeah. That's the word, man. Like I'll put the Maxwell on, you know, go to see the genuine, whenever it might take for me to become relaxed in these positions. But that's all an environmental constraint and input in the system. And those certain cognition need to be accounted for. Hey, everybody, just a quick interruption to this podcast from a message from our sponsors. Our sponsor today is Organifi. You guys have heard me talking about Organifi green and red for a long time. I've been drinking it every day. Typically, it's been post-workout lately. And sometimes I even bring the red intra-workout to increase my pumps and just give me a little bit of sugar that I need to keep that high performance going. Allows me to recover effectively and just make sure I cover my bases. Organifi greens and reds are dehydrated, high-quality vegetables and superfoods and fruits that ultimately allow you to get access to all the nutrients your body needs to thrive. Organifi juice and adaptogenic blend powders, as well as supplements to support immunity, digestion, and detoxification. Uh, Organifi is 100% organic and offers something for, truly for everyone. Their clinically proven adaptogenic ingredients um, are uh, they taste amazing and incredibly effective. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off your order. And that's everything store-wide, whether you get the greens, the reds, the gold, the proteins. They've also got some delicious proteins that I suggest you check out as well. But at very least, if you're going to choose one or choose two, Definitely, definitely, definitely grab the greens and the reds. And uh, if you're feeling adventurous, go ahead and grab their gold, which I promise you will not regret. Uh, Organifi.com slash muscle. Back to the show. So does the other end of spectrum ultra as well? Obviously, I don't have contextual uh, experience. So I can think of a client right now whose muscle tone is uh, that of an of a overcooked noodle, right? And so they're coming in, they've got very little... Uh, tone and it's too very very passive and very soft and almost to the point of um, you know passivity right it's almost to the point of like they can't do they don't have enough muscle tone to generate enough you know movement for basic day to day tasks so then would it look like something hey we're gonna do something to, to tone up this thing like let's see something that's physically strenuous that allows you to 
increase the ability to recruit the autonomic nervous system or recruit the central nervous system. Yeah, and that's where I would look at. That's where I would look at when we have this discussion of stability and base level strength. To go that you know stability might be our our final our final stage that we really want to get to. And and for some people, that stage could be far away. And we look at someone who doesn't have that muscle tone, doesn't have that ability or capacity to kind of exert force right out of the gate. Maybe this is someone where we look at on um, base level or attenuated, you know, isometrics in their cognitive phase, where we're finding positions that are more externally stabilized. We're holding positions that we want to find later on, like you kind of talked about these neuromuscular patterns and, and trading and light currencies. Well, if I want to exert force, you know, from, you know, a 90 degree position of knee flexion and hip flexion, and this person doesn't have that muscle tone or capacity to drive force right away and not even in stability, but at base level strength. Well, I'm going to put this person into a position where they're stabilized, that they can then begin to understand it in the isometric sense, how to overcome isometrics, right? And overcoming isometrics becomes an immense warm up in people who don't have that capacity fresh out of the gate. And that's brilliant. I think every every person listening should acknowledge what just exists in there. If you didn't, rewind it, listen to it again. But just this idea of like, as a, as a coach, throwing, into, throwing someone into a complex neurological exercise that they don't know how to move through, that they don't know how to stabilize. And then ultimately moving is obviously incredibly more neurologically, cognitively complex than not moving. So taking out the movement variable and saying, hey, go to this position, which is effectively what you're able to do right now with control. So this is your end range mobility and stability uh, you know, positions of, of that you're able to access and stay there and then overcome the isometric, but, you know, pushing into the floor, pushing into the wall, pushing into some machine. Um, and ultimately turning up the volume knob on the, the central nervous system and saying, hey, you need to get stronger in this position. Um, there's, there's a ton of value in that. Yeah. And that's where that's where I look to see, like we're talking a lot about cognitive right now, but I think to look at these phases in isolation or over the course of a day is to not pay them the credit where the credit's due in the long term and to look at, um, you know, uh, like over a training block, over, you know, multiple cycles and even over the course of days is your autonomous work, your end of your workout on the previous day is truly your cognitive prep for the workout of the next day. Yeah, something I do a lot with baseball is baseball players who I know are going to throw, say, on a Friday, I will have the autonomous work that they do on, say, a Thursday. So the end of their workout, we're going to look at alphanumeric exercise selection. The C, D, and E class of their Thursday afternoon workout are actually exercises that are setting up cognitive positions for their throwing game the next day. If I've got a pitcher, I have a pitcher moving into front foot elevated split squat with a contralateral load suggesting rotation. And I'm having him do a uh, face pull, rope face pull high, um, looking for you know, a position of the scapular plane or scaption, external rotation at the shoulder, not retraction. And he's finding these, these end ranges. He's starting to kind of draw the circle around the straight line that is pitching. So we're not, we're not innervating pitching mechanics to make him better. We're not tying the baseball to the cable machine. But in that autonomous work, he's finding end ranges of external rotation, holding long isometric tempos in that position, strengthening the end range. Same goes for front foot elevated split squat. Now in the next day, when we put him in those positions, he has the cognition of understanding how to throw and the perception of how end ranges feel. He's now acquired those positions at a greater rate. We've also launched a course recovery win. I- 
super excited to hear all about that. Let's just jump into the course, man. So tell us why you created it. Uh, everyone knows you from the podcast in the past, having talked about heart rate variability, recoverability, energy systems. Um, so why is Recover to Win your newest baby? Yeah, you know, it's something I've been working on for a long time just because I saw such a need for for coaches to extend their coaching beyond the walls of the gym. Um, you know, I think we've spent a lot of time learning sets and reps and exercises and methods, and those things have been covered, you know, millions of times and lots of people talk about it. Uh, but but the reality is if, if you're not coaching some of the other big pieces, if you're not coaching people to improve their sleep, if you're not coaching them to understand the big picture of recovery, if you're not looking about, uh, you know, activity and regeneration strategies, all those pieces matter in terms of helping people improve their fitness and achieve their goals. And the education just hasn't been there for, for the coaches or for the clients themselves. There just hasn't been an organized, structured way to approach recovery in a way that's meaningful and valuable. So uh, I, I built it to, to serve that need, to serve that purpose, and to help people understand how do I help someone improve their sleep from a coach? Or if I'm a client, how do I go about improving my sleep? How do I know how active I should be? How many steps a day are right for me? Is 10,000 right or is that just a made-up number? Uh, you know, How does nutrition play a role in the recovery? So I really just want to help people understand the big peak, big picture these questions. And so recover to win was, was my answer to that. So walk through like high level overview of the course. And, and, you know, you mentioned something like recoverability and heart rate variability is obviously a thing, but, uh, is, is it effectively just walking through strategies, you know, kind of silo by silo, whether it be nutrition or recovery strategies to help people improve recoverability for performance? Yeah. So I have five big pieces of recovery wins. So I have move, train, eat, sleep, and regenerate. And those are really the five big pillars of recovery in my mind, because those are the five things that drive it. So Bill Recovery to Win to go through each one of those pillars, you know, movement, how active should be should I be? Is the right amount of steps for me 10,000, 20,000, 5,000? Like how many steps should I be going? You know, trading, what sort of intensities are appropriate? How do I manage those intensities based on my recovery? Uh, sleeping, how does my sleep affect my recovery? How do I improve my sleep? What, what defines good sleep? Uh, nutrition, you know, what do I eat? How do I eat it? How do those things play a role? And then regeneration. So I walk through each of those pillars so people understand how they work, uh, how to improve, how to assess them, how to evaluate whether or not you have a problem in that area. And then the last module is building a recovery roadmap. And so that's really the process of figuring out what it is that I need to improve the most in my recovery and my lifestyle to get better fitness. And so I attack it the same way as training. You know, I don't just say, oh, we're going to improve every area of fitness at once. I figure out, okay, well, here's the area of fitness that I think is going to help you the most get to where you want to go. It's the same thing with recovery. And I really want to help people look at recovery from that standpoint of a plan, a strategy versus just a bunch of things that you do. And so the idea is that I want to develop this process where I evaluate my recovery in these different areas of my lifestyle. I figure out where are my biggest limitations, whether that's nutritional or sleep or the training side or whatever the case may be. And then I come up with an actual plan to, to address it and to fix it, to improve my sleep or to improve my nutrition or to manage my intensity more effectively or to get better at managing mental stress. And then you track it. You use the data, you use the technology to see and make sure that you are achieving those positive changes and it is having the impact that you want to have. So, you know, again, people think about building a training program. They think about exercises and sets and reps and they, they have a goal and they work towards it. They see if they're improving. But recovery has gotten more attention recently, but it's always been like, go try cryo or go get a massage or try these supplements. Like, not that they're, not that they're bad, uh, but, but it needs to be more a framework. It needs to have more context and more of a system behind it. And then that's really the way I've approached recovery is just that same process of training, but on the recovery side and attacking weak links and minimizing things that are keeping you from reaching your goals. And that's the framework that I built it on. 
Yeah, it's effectively throw shit at the wall and see what sticks, right? Yeah, and hope, hope something works, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and as far as your approach, you know, that's exactly what I do. It's like, what's the elephant in the room? What's the big glaring weakness in, in your armor? Let's yeah. make that better first. And then I say, like, pull that lever first, and people will notice such a drastic improvement in their ability to recover and perform um, that it's just, it's almost like a no-brainer. And it, no coaches really take that approach, it seems, and I'm glad that you're doing this because you know people are always trying to scale volume and they're trying to scale intensity and they're trying to scale workload and work capacity without you know kind of concurrently scaling recover recovery modalities as well and nobody's emphasizing that as as maybe the greatest opportunity to progress it is i mean yeah well why do i mean we don't have to go this whole rabbit hole but why do people use performance enhancing drugs i mean say use it to scale recovery i mean that's literally what does the drug primarily allow you to create a bigger training effect through greater stress and then they facilitate much greater recovery. I mean, I've used, yep. I've seen people use drugs and their their HRV goes through the roof because their body is just highly anabolic and it's highly in this recovery state all the time. So obviously we can't, we can't have the exact same effect, but it's, it's just this principle of people need to understand that scaling up recovery does in many, most cases, scale up results. It's, it's yep. just as important to scale up intensity. And to your point, you can't scale up intensity without also scale up recovery because intensity causes the need for more recovery. And so if you don't do any address it, you just get this, this, this yo-yo system that people go through of, I, I see some results, I stop the results. I do more intensity, I see a little more results. I scale up intensity and sooner or later, I hit a plateau and maybe I get injured. So it's just this, this recurring cycle that people need to break. And the way you break it is by matching the, the gains of intensity and volume with improvements in your recovery at the same time. Yeah, that's one of the things I teach my coaches is like, what are all the levers you could possibly pull to improve recovery? Just list them, like put them all on a piece of paper and go, okay, well, which ones for that particular client are, are feasible, are useful, and are likely to be retained over time or adhered to over time. Yeah. And, you know, that in and of itself is is the foundation of it all. So it's just listing them in this high-level way. You know, okay, which one of these seems like it'll actually move the needle the most for this particular person? So let's walk, let's let's go through movement, Joel, and, and how you uh, start, you know, kind of maybe maybe qualifying movement before you quantify it, right? Because, sure. you know, 20,000 steps uh, you know, walking around the house while, you know, going to the fridge is not the same as 20,000 steps out climbing a mountain. So is there a way that you suggest people kind of conceptualize movement in general? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two pieces to it. We can, we can look at this overall movement quality, which is its own animal, right? You can evaluate how well people are moving. If they have big limitations, they're going to cause more stress. They repeat them over a thousand times a day, right? And then you can look at just the overall amount. And a lot of it, to be honest, it comes down to just energy. It literally just kind of comes down to the amount of calories you expend in a day. Yep. And of course, climbing a mountain is going to be different than walking, but at the same point in time, you're going to burn a whole lot more calories climbing a mountain, and that's going to differentiate walking aside the intensity level. So we just have to understand that the metabolism can only create so much energy in a day. And the biggest piece of that is just our activity. And if we if we do go 20,000 steps up a mountain, that's going to burn a tremendous amount of energy. And then the question is, is there enough left over for the recovery piece? So we just have to understand how many total calories should we be targeting in a day to burn? And you know that generally will fall into a step range, but it depends like like shed on the activity. So the first thing I do is you can take about two and a half times your basic metabolic rate. If you've ever had a metabolic test done or you use what's called the Miffler-St. Jor equation, you can kind of use ways to estimate uh, roughly where your, your metabolic ceiling is. And that's somewhere around two and a half times that number. What that means is if I consistently exceed that number of calories expended in a day, chances are I'm not going to have enough left over for recovery because my metabolism can't create more than that on average. So if my rest of the metabolic rate, like let's say it takes me roughly a thousand calories just to stay alive, about 2,500 calories a day is what I'm going to be able to burn consistently or produce consistently on a daily basis. If I start going over that consistently, 
I'm going to start to see negative things happen. So you always, you, you do take intensity into account, obviously, but that's, you know, intensity also will drive higher calories anyway. So, you know, I started there, just understand the big picture of energy production, metabolism, and I figure out what someone's metabolic shielding is. And I use that as a guideline to help them understand how much activity is or is not appropriate on a given day. And then beyond that, you look at the quality side as well. So there's kind of two sides of this coin that I want to approach is like, there's, there's the performance side and there's the fat loss side. And you said, you know, if I can only, um, produce two and a half times my basal metabolic rate and energy per day, would that be an appropriate level for someone who's trying to lose fat to actually start to try, try to hit, right? Like, do I want to be slightly over that two and a half times a day to allow myself to, to know that I'm actually, there's no way that I'm not going to burn fat or is that simply too much? I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, luckily, obviously, you have to create caloric deficit. There's two ways to do it, right? You you eat less or you move more, and probably some combination thereof. So you can definitely increase activity uh, and and obviously burn more fat up to a point, but it kind of comes back to the calorie equation too. So you can do it both ways, uh, and both other pluses and minuses. If you're if you're super highly active and you're you, know, you are going consistently above that threshold, then you are going to have a greater impact on your recovery than if you stay around that threshold and just create the deficit through you know nutritional uh, deficit. So. I think for, you know, it depends on the level of body fat loss you're talking about. You can definitely exceed that for a while, but then I think you do want to come back down that number as well too. So you, if you do consistently exceed that number by a, a large, large amount, that's where we do see the research showing immune system compromise. Uh, you see your loss of sex drive. You see all the negative things that we see when the deficit's too big. Basically, it doesn't matter what your deficit is if that's, you know, going to be end result. So you have to be just mindful of that number. And I think you can exceed it for times. But I wouldn't have anybody say, you know, go three times your basic metabolic rate to maximize fat loss. I think you're going to have a cost of the commission return there. Do you think that, um, so you say two and a half times is your body's maximum ability to produce energy. Do you think that would be then the ceiling of calories we should be inputting without uh, going over to, because obviously if we're going over the amount our body can produce, it's maybe likely to be stored as fat. I'm curious what your thought is. There. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it, it, it's basically that we, it's not that we can't ever do that. So we can't do that over long time. period of time, over time. So you can definitely exceed that number for, I mean, you go run a marathon, you're burning more than that, or you, mm-hmm. you go climb a mountain, I mean, you are burning more than that. It's, it's been shown essentially that over the, the, the course of days, weeks, and months, you're in, you can't exceed that consistently. Like your, your body kind of always adapts back to that, that number in terms of how many calories you can produce. And the, the, the interesting thing is the reason that it does that, they think, and this is this is a research um, out of where they they went down and measured a lot of the African hunter gatherer tribes. They measured different endurance events. They just kind of looked at what are our bodies capable in terms of metabolism, because the reality is it takes time to turn the apple into calories, and it takes energy to turn the apple into calories. It takes energy to make energy, and so there's just limitations in how fast that can happen and how much you can do in that 24 hour period on average over time. And so if you start to uh, you know, exceed that, and it doesn't really matter what your caloric intake is, you would ultimately just be burning down. You would be drawing down your fat stores and your glycogen stores. So they think that it's a metabolic ceiling because it it's a hard stop for our body to be able to avoid eating itself more or less. So the, the idea would be if if I consistently burns, you know, five times my BMR, it, it wouldn't matter how much calories I ate. I would still be drawing down fat and muscle and old meat glycogen and everything else. I'd be depleting myself into the ground if I could consistently burn more than that. So there's a kind of hard stop of around two and a half times is what our body uses to protect itself uh, in terms of making sure we can, we can survive and not just, you basically train yourself to death no matter how much you ate is my point if they didn't yeah. have that hard limit, right? Yeah. So what would be the, the kind of core tenets you would teach a coach 
as far as establishing base level or 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 you know performance level movement in someone. So look, I think everyone kind of has their way of approaching movement screens. So there's there's lots of different paths, but you just want to make sure people have good movement competency and you know the core movements of pushing, pulling, lunging, squatting, rotating, those sorts of things. And then the biggest thing I would say is if, if you can't move well in some of these basic movement patterns, and then you do go 10, 15, 20,000 steps a day, you work out, that's where you get just exacerbated levels of stress. Yeah. And you'll see that in HRV, right? You'll see somebody who generally moves pretty well, has good soft tissue quality, has just good movement capacity. They'll recover a whole lot faster than somebody who doesn't because they're just placing more and more stress themselves the more they move. So you want to develop those, those movement qualities in line with managing their overall movement uh, activity level. So that you are good managing their overall level of stress. And I've seen that tons of times. Like if someone's squat pattern's really bad, you put them through a squat workout, they're going to be a lot worse off the next day than somebody whose squat pattern was really good. So it's it's a moving target. It's the same thing. You always been working to improve them because the the worse your movement is, the more stress it is on your body. The slower your recovery becomes. It's that simple. You know, man, you're you're the only person I've ever heard talk about that, and that's such an amazing thing that needs to just be driven home to people. It's like than the value of high level movement quality and its ability to to ultimately decrease the the internal stress placed on the system. I think people don't conceptualize that. Most people just go to the gym and go, hey man, just just bite down and work hard. And that just to me, that's just the stupidest thing in the world. Like, no, it's like it's quality has to come before quantity. And people just don't see that. And you're literally the first person I've ever heard say that. Yeah, I mean, sure, I've seen it, right? So you yeah. have someone come with you have, you have you have someone come to the gym. And their movement sucks. And I'll look at their HRV the next day. And I'll look at the big picture. You can see that that level of workout, even though it wasn't maybe that higher intensity or volume, it just trashed them because their body is so uncoordinated in those movement patterns to create so much stress and where it's not designed to be that the body has to have so much more time devoted to the re- repair process because it just it stressed a bunch of tissues that probably weren't designed for that stress. And so it just slows the entire thing down tremendously versus you take, I mean, honestly, I think this is the big thing of, the first thing I'll say, I noticed this a long time ago. I went to the train camp with Seahawks really early on, and I'd measure HRV, and I'd watch them go out and train the first session, and I'd look at it again. Sometimes they'd look better. Like sometimes they'd literally, like that first morning session was almost like a recovery stimulated session than anything else, where somebody else would have just crushed them because A, they have good work capacity and they're good they're athletes, but their movement quality is so good. They're able to play four quarters in a game because they're able to be so efficient in their movement, and it's so much less stress on them that it would be the average person. So I saw that really early on at like a high-level athlete, just how much different they were than the non-athlete. It was just a stark contrast. People always say, what's the difference with high-level athletes? Like their work capacity, their movement, their recoverability is just so high above the average person that they can tolerate you know, a season or a game in the way that the average person never could. And a lot of that just came back to, I saw that over and over again, really good quality movements led to much faster recovery. And then I just saw that same thing across the general population clients I would see and the people that generally speaking had really bad movement quality. If you overload, that's the other thing is if someone's got bad movement qualities and you overload them, you're, you know, you're just slowing their recovery down so, so much right. that you're better, you're better off spending time improving the movement before you load them up more because they're, they're going to take three, four days to recover from something versus their movement, you know, can, can cut that down dramatically. So yeah. I just saw it, you know. Ish. Yeah, that, that seems to be a massive role of strength and conditioning coaches and therapists in professional sports is like, you don't necessarily have to make them better. Maybe you do, but you're making their movement quality better, right? So it's just like their their primary focus is how do we improve these foundational movements? How do we make sure they're moving well? Are they getting the right type of soft tissue work, the right mobility work, stability work, so that their body can do what it's meant to do? So it's just this foundational stuff that 
I see pro athletes doing daily that yeah. the average gym rat just sends to neglect, right? They just go, I'm just going to go in and, 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 and squat heavy today. I'm going to bench heavy today with absolutely no regard for those foundational movements. And, you know, even things as simple as, as breathing mechanics, as walking mechanics, like I preach this, you know, to the nth degree, like if you can't do these things well, don't do anything else. Just like focus on those first because everything that stacks on top of those is dysfunctional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really does come down to the foundation. And I think the the problem is, you know, you grow up in fitness and you grow up in magazines, you go on all in forums. It's about sets. It's about how much weight you can lift. So how many, how many pounds you can squat. So what's your bench? You know, that's kind of how we pride ourselves in the fitness world. Like that's our badge of honor is like, I can squat 500 pounds. You might look like shit doing it, uh, but you still throw up that number and you put a picture on Instagram of you squatting 500 pounds. So I think we've just kind of, it, it lends itself to, you know, the, the look at me approach, you know, to, to see yourself squatting as much as you can or lifting as much as you can. But, if, you know, the problem is if you are lifting that weight with poor mechanics, you know, you end up like a lot of the old powerlifters, which, you know, I respect their 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 work ethic. But a lot of powerlifters, you, you see them these days, like they can barely move. I mean, they're, beat, they're just broken, beat the shit, you know, all those guys. And maybe they were willing to pay that price. That's their own, their own decision. Uh, but I think your average person going to the gym doesn't really want to pay that price. They they do actually want to feel better. They do want to live longer. They want to be healthier. But the way that they're approaching their training is not necessarily supporting that because they're building on a foundation of really heavy, poor movements and you know, really high intensity, poor conditioning. Same thing. As I got around some like-minded individuals, I got around people that really wanted to level up and get better at stuff like a Louis Simmons and like a Stan Efforting. I started to really learn that a lot of this doesn't have that much to do or there, it has has a lot to do with how physical you're going to be when you're trying to be really good at something that's physical. Like there's going to be some requirements to it. But I learned that the mental side seemed to be the real separator, seemed to be the real thing that really divided people. Louis Simmons is like a mentor, motivator, um, kind of like an evil genius of some sort where he would poke and prod at you and say things in some weird ways where you were like, I mean, he told me that I'd never get on the board at West side. I'd never be able to knock anybody off of his uh, record board. And I was never able to do it while I was there. But when I left, it's something that continued to drive me. And I was able to beat um, one of the greatest bench pressers of all time, Dave Hoff. I was able to get past him and then he surpassed me by, <laughs> by quite a bit uh, years later. But you know, these people, they know how to drive you. They know how to influence you. They know how to impact you. And they know how to get the best out of you. Meeting Stan was a real eye-opener for me because at that time in my life, I was pre-workout, you know, drink, you know, just consume as much caffeine as possible, crank up some crazy music and go in the gym and lift like a lunatic. When I met Stan, he just like had it. And he just came in and he just like lifted the weights and beat everybody. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, how do you do that? And then I just realized like, it's like what I was doing was kind of fake, you know, the pre-workout, all these different things. Everything was already within inside me. Everything's within you. The answers are within you. You can, you can get yourself up for a workout. You don't have to act like a lunatic. Uh, you don't have to scream. You don't have to yell. You don't have to have music cranking. But if you prefer that and you like some of that mode, that's okay. But when you lean on that too much, it could be a huge mistake. And so as I went through powerlifting and as I started to transition a little bit into 
uh, some business stuff, having an invention and having a product and stuff that ended up becoming really valuable. Just having this, having this even mind, because if I went into the gym and I had my pre-workout and I had the music cranking and it just wasn't there for the day, I would be extremely disappointed. I'm not sure if you've had these experiences, but I've cried from workouts before. I mean, literally cried, not, not cried because I was in pain, cried because I was just so disappointed in myself. I was like, that was worthless. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're trying to be one of the best in the world. Like that just sucked. That was awful. When Stan came through the doors, I started to see how he was able to manage stuff. I was like, oh, okay, hold on a second. So if I just do the work, if I just train and I eat and I sleep and I have this kind of body of work that represents how good I'm going to be, I'm going to be about that good. <laughs> and it, it doesn't really have to do with me being mad or, or me looking like I'm fired up or me headbutting the bar. It's a skill set. It's a skill acquisition. And if I have the skill, I'll be good enough to do what I'm trying to do. And so that was really valuable to me because as I went through business and as I started to learn some things with that, you know, there's a lot of things in business that are real curveballs where you're like, oh shit, I wasn't, you, you get a product sampled and you get the product, you check it out. You're like, oh, this is great. And then you're like, let's make 5,000 of these things. You make 5,000 of them and they all suck <laughs> for whatever reason, something, uh, something got lost in translation or something like that. And you end up with a bunch of shitty product. Well, being mad doesn't help. It doesn't change, you know, being mad or sad. It doesn't help change the fact that you ended up with a bad product. And so I have to kind of look within myself and say, Hey, you know, um, you have a product that you can't sell because it's not the way that you wanted it. Who's, who's at fault here? Who, who's, who's out money? You know, it would be me, right? I'd be out the money and I'd also have to try to figure out what, how, do, how can I, I got to be able to communicate better. Like I, I must've said something wrong. Or I must have made a mistake. I must have jumped the gun somewhere. So let me just shoulder this whole responsibility just like you would with your training. And let me take care of this the right way and make sure I'm not trying to cut any corners and make sure I'm not trying to just rely on cranking that music up and not relying on the pre-workout to do anything for me. It, it's got to be, you know, I got to shoulder it all myself. Yeah, that's great. And it's, it's the idea of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, right? And I'm sure Powell can tell you that at many levels. And uh, as, as a business owner, I get it. Like either you're going to take complete responsibility for your mismanagement or your lack of leadership, you know, or you're going to try to give it to somebody else. And uh, a true leader will step in and say, you know what, obviously I didn't do a good enough job explaining myself, man. I, I've had that more times than I care to share. It's, it's like something doesn't go right and just like, okay, I see like I rushed it or I, I you know, tried to do it really fast and, and didn't wasn't explicit with my instructions. And certainly took away from the end result. And I think bodybuilding and powerlifting are both a great opportunity to start looking at um, all the details, right? And I think that might've been what set me apart in bodybuilding is I was the guy who was looking at all the T's and all the I's and all the Q's and all the P's. And like, I wanted to, to cross off every box because that was the only way I could compete. And right, and that's what allows me to be successful in business as well, is like, I'm looking at the things that nobody else is thinking about, right? And I think there's a lot of value there, especially I mean, I'm going to stay on this mentor uh, track because I think it's valuable. And I want, I want to go back to talk about, you know, Louis is one of these guys who, from the outside anyways, looks like he's crossed the T's and dotting the I's. And uh, to, to 
extreme degree. Um, is that something you feel you learned there? And what are some of the biggest takeaways other than his insidious little remarks to get you motivated? Um, what do you think? What are some of the biggest takeaways you have working with Louis? Um, number one, you know, he, he is just a, he's just an amazing person. He really cares about people a lot. And I don't know if, uh, I don't know if a lot of people that are close to him know that, but he's, he's very like tender. He's very kind. Um, I mean, he took me to breakfast, uh, every day for like a year and paid for it every time. Uh, wouldn't let me pay for it. I had to like trick him, you know, to try to pay for stuff here and there and he'd be super pissed at me. Um, so he was always like, he was always really kind and he always wanted to spend a lot of time with, with the people that lifted it at the gym. He felt that, uh, I think he felt that having like a family atmosphere in the gym was important, like that you cared about one another, that you hung out outside the gym, at least a little bit. Because I think that you're, you're, you have a tendency to be more involved in someone's workout and to yell, cheer, spot, whatever it might be, assist, criticize, uh, the other athletes when you're around them more, you know, when you see them more, you'll be more compassionate for them. And that's like a weird side thing that not, not, it hasn't been talked about much because West side is this, you know, kind of like has this macho stigma of these like badass lifters and they are badass lifters, but these are people that really truly care about one another and they want to see each other advance, uh, in the gym, it can get crazy in the gym. It can get kind of, you know, almost I've seen a couple fights in there and stuff like that. But the main thing with Louis is you know, he's got a free gym. He's trying to have the strongest lifters that anybody's ever seen. Um, but he also is not afraid to take time. He's not afraid to take his time with people. And I think that that was something, uh, that was huge for me to learn. I have people come here from all over the world here at super training gym. And I had a guy come in yesterday and he's telling me about his story and he starts getting choked up. He starts uh, crying and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Hey man, you know, this means this stuff means a lot to me too. Like I've, I've been where you're at. I've had mentors uh, that have like, you know, made me weep, made me cry just like you're crying right now because it just meant so much to me. It, it helped me get through uh, a lot of life's, you know, trials and tribulations and stuff like that. So Louis Simmons is somebody that puts a lot of time into people. And an example of that was I was supposed to go somewhere with him, supposed to go to the Cleveland Browns. Louis sold like 10 reverse hyper extension machines to them. It was a big deal at that time because his machines were kind of all over the place, um, but they weren't in a lot of the NFL uh, facilities just yet. And the Cleveland Browns is one of the big ones. And Louie's been a long time Cleveland Browns fan. And so we, we were going to drive up there and I, to Louie's house. And Louie got a phone call. And he starts talking to this guy. He talks to this guy for like 45 minutes. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, oh shit, like we're probably going to be late. And he hangs up the phone and I go, Lou, who was that? He's like, I don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I thought it would have been some, you know, it, it, it was the rock or something. You know, I would have thought that it was like, you know, somebody, uh, that, that he was holding, you know, um, that he felt was more important than this business meeting that he had. But, uh, he always put other people before his own, you know, before his, his own needs. And I, I thought that was great. And I always found that to be 
uh, amazing. And then I try to do the same thing here. My gym is free. A lot of it's modeled after what he was doing. Um, not necessarily from the powerlifting perspective, but just spreading the word of strength and spreading the word of, uh, of fitness. And I mean, those are some of the main, the main things I learned from him. The other side of it is just, just as you know, you know, with, with bodybuilding, it just, you know, most people only go to about 60% or so. Uh, most of the people that think they're all in and then even once you think that you're all in you're still like kind of far from doing just doing everything that you're supposed to do and uh, you know for me the experience of bodybuilding was really eye-opening i was like oh man i'm like holy shit i'm like i wonder what i could have done in powerlifting if i would have done some bodybuilding first because powerlifting doesn't take you to that brink you you do uh load up big weights you do have to figure out a way to overcome the fear of lifting those big weights but it's very different you know just even something like getting on a leg extension or you know supersetting uh, like a hack squat with a leg extension or something or just you know trying to not throw up during, during a workout or trying not to fall apart when you start hitting some of your uh, accessory movements uh after you you know after a really tough leg day that stuff you can you can and, and it teaches you a lot about you know pre-workout and firing up yourself with music and because that shit doesn't work in bodybuilding it like literally does nothing no. and you're just up against it and you're like i you're like i am so fucked and you're like i you're like i know before this workout i came in here with the intention i was going to give it everything i got and now because it's so difficult it's so challenging. It's different for me. I want to quit. I just want to fucking stop. You know, there's not many exercises that do that to me, but bodybuilding got me through a lot of that. I can I could feel it. And when I was powerlifting, I thought I would do some bodybuilding. You know, all powerlifters are like, oh yeah, I do some bodybuilding. But no, it's not. It's like you're not really doing you're not really doing bodybuilding. Like bodybuilding is is bodybuilding is way more intense than it gets credit for. And what it does to your mind, I don't know how to explain it or describe it, but it's almost like, it feels like to me, it feels like my brain gets like branded. Like you get, you get like, like, like uh, you would brand like a bowl or something. It feels like your brain gets like stamped on. And it's like, and the reason why I say it is like, uh, once you break through, you know, you're supposed to do a set of 12 and you're at rep number nine and you're like, you know what? I'm fucking going for 15. Like, I don't care if I need a little spot, that's fine. I'm going for 15 and you get to 15 and you're like, you know what? Fuck it again. I'm going for 20, you know, and you just, you go for broke and you absolutely demolish yourself. It feels like you're now like brand certified to be a badass and to continue to break past that spot that you usually got stuck at. Normally, every time in any other place in your life, if you pushed yourself, you probably made started to make excuses and when you're doing like a leg workout it's really easy to say oh my knee or I had a tough week of training like i'm pretty banged up my elbow hurts or this hurts that hurts it's really easy to start falling into to those excuses but what i'm trying to share with people is you can get the fuck it's in either direction you can say oh fuck it man I, you know i had a cheeseburger this morning so i'm gonna have some ice cream tonight you could say, fuck it, I'm going to, uh, you know, the workout started out kind of shitty, so 
I, I'm just going to do like some lateral raises and leave, <laughs> you know, or you can get the fuckets in the other direction where you say, you know what? Fuck it, man. I'm going all in. You have never done this before. See what happens. See what reward you get. See how it feels. And once you get to that other side, which is really hard for me to describe, but once you get to that other side, you're going to want to get there a lot because it feels so good. It, it's hard to put into words. And I, I'd never reached, you know, your level of bodybuilding. So I don't know what a lot of that is like, but I would say that it's probably similar within my own body and within my own mind, even though I wasn't able to get 32 inch thighs or however damn big your, your legs are. And so that really, that's actually really interesting, right? Like somebody who's 150 pounds, who's really hasn't done much training, as long as they kind of know how to track their muscles a little bit, maybe they've trained for two or three years, they can have the same mental experience in some degree, maybe not as intense all the time, as Ben Pakulski in the middle of his bodybuilding career. That fucking blows my mind that people have an opportunity to go through that kind of work. Uh, That's interesting. I, I don't know if they can. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know if they can. I, I don't think it's the same level of amplification. I get like relative to what they're physically capable of. Like I can't experience what it feels like to have a thousand pounds on my back. Even if like 600 is my max, it's not the same. It's, yeah. a, it's a new level of experience. And I don't say that to diminish anybody's efforts. But, um, you know, like when you really start to understand what you're capable of, I call, I look at it like doorways, Mark. I'm like, well, you went through door num number one and then you went through door number two and then you went through number three. Some people out there went through door number seven, four, right? Like if you're a Navy SEAL, and that's why I always said, like, I've never worked hard in my life. Okay, but I don't know what hard work is. Like I'm, I'm a pussy compared to those guys, right? Like the workouts I've done would, would crush everyone. But compared to someone out there, I'm, I'm nothing. And that was always my perspective from the beginning is, um, you know, hard work is relative. And you get all these people saying on social media, hey, I worked really hard today. I think that's awesome. And they did. But as soon as they say, oh, I worked hard today, does it stop your brain from going, but what's next? Speaking of hypertrophy training, we'll kind, of, we'll kind of cut right to the chase. You're obviously extremely accomplished in this sport. You've studied it probably more than most people on the planet. Well, I mean, when I say accomplished, you've got a ton of muscle on your body, man. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, talking about you know, maybe the simplest way to start is like, what what were the things that you did wrong that you're like, man, now's here's here's something that I wish I would have known when I started this, because I think a lot of people think they're advanced in muscle building, but ultimately are, are very low level beginners. Ultimately, even the highest level quote unquote fitness celebrities out there sure. are ultimately what I would class as beginners when it comes to exercise, where I put you in the advanced the the class of being extremely advanced. Yeah, I mean, I wish I did multiple things from the nutritional end and the training end. On the training end, I'll just pick one, and that's using a full and standard range of motion. I did God knows how many leg workouts where I, you know, like the average bro leg workout where something happens, hypothetically your quads are maybe involved, mostly it's your hips and knees. Right. And you lifted, yeah, you lifted a lot. I remember doing a and uh like a an eighth squat or quarter squat or something uh i did like 685 for nine and i was like 19 years old i weighed 180 pounds like you know it was a college gym so everyone stopped what they were doing it stole gym went silent when i was doing it yeah and they were like everyone's impressed because everyone's fucking at that age just an idiot and has no idea what's actually impressive right. and then i did that and i was like man my quads are going to be fucked up 
And like the next day, the only thing that hurt was my knees. And I was like, okay, lesson permanently learned. And then one time I saw this dude uh, squatting and he had bigger quads than me. He was doing like not very impressive weight, but he was doing like a, a bonus points Olympic squat where it was like he was sitting into the ground. And I was like, huh? And then I tried squatting like that. And I was like, oh my God, my muscles are feeling it, not necessarily my joints. And if I had just done that sooner, I would have spared myself a whole lot of like, just really ineffective training that, you know, your joints can only handle so much and there's a certain amount they can handle through your entire career. And the more you spare them early, the more that when you're actually strong and, and your joints are at risk, even with a full range of motion, the more sort of oomph you have left in you. And I wish that I hadn't done that. Now, on the nutritional side, I, you know, more uh, a lot of regrets, but one of them is I tried to get like way too big and I didn't care if it was fat. And I got so fat that I put on way too much body fat. It took me a while to get it off and like, I have like saggy skin in a couple of areas. It's stupid and annoying. And I just shouldn't have gotten that fat. I know that sounds dumb, but like people are like, you know, like dirty bulk, bro. Like you just got to eat like, you know, the like over the oversimplifiers, right. especially at YouTuber comments, like just eat lift, bro. Like, are you really that simple? I wonder. <laughs> and that's the most frustrating thing in our world, I think, is, is you happen to tune into people's YouTube and Instagram comments, the nonsense. And people buy into that shit. Like, oh, that guy's got a ten thousand followers, man. He's got to know what he's talking about. And just banging your forehead, being like, "You idiots!" I mean, ultimately, your body needs just enough to grow, or just enough to fuel hell of a performance. Excess has no choice but to be served as fat, unless you're genetic and genetic anomaly, and you're synthesizing protein at a higher rate, or, or you know, like it's it's very unlikely that all that extra calories are going to go anywhere but fat. Yeah, I wish I had known that. I had the fat to prove it. Dude, we all, I did the same thing, man. And that was my coaching from the beginning, right? I was, I was 16, 17 years old and I was like, I ought to be Mr. Olympia and made that decision early. And my coach goes, okay, well, here's your, here's your protocol. If, if you can't eat protein every two to three hours, you eat three tablespoons of peanut butter. And I'm like, okay. And, and three tablespoons. That's an interesting algorithm. <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, there's some protein or he thought, maybe he told me there's some protein in there. There's some shy, you're getting some calories. Yeah, no, pro no protein, yeah, but something. Yeah, that was the idea. And again, I put on a ton of weight, got really strong, but it wasn't good weight, right? And and again, it's such a subjective thing to know exactly how many calories to consume until you start tracking. And you're like, yeah. hey, dude, you need to eat 3,000 calories a day. And that may be the root of that. Uh, yep. thing. What you're getting to there is just track, man, track, pay yep. attention. Yep. Uh, awesome, man. So you've, you've evolved uh, Renaissance Periodization to be uh, an educational platform, a coaching platform, you say you're also um, doing a lot of writing. I'd love to kind of give uh, perspective on what the business is and what your greatest um, value is or what your greatest contribution is with that business to the fitness community. Well, thanks. Yeah, so um, the business started out as just my business partner and I. Uh, the business was his idea. Um, he and I were sharing clients and I was in a PhD program in Tennessee and he was still personal training in New York City where we both sort of uh, had worked earlier. And we were sort of exchanging diet and training clients like I had diet clients and they were in New York City and they were like, I feel like my personal trainer is an idiot. And I'm like, maybe because <laughs> they're like, he talked about the diet you wrote in a way that makes no sense to me and I'm not a nutritionist. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, do you have any trainers in the city that are any good? And I was like, well, yeah, Nick Shaw, like, and they're like, okay. And it's at some point, and he would, you know, uh, refer his training clients and other folks he knew to me as their diet coach. And at some point it just gets weird to be like my friend, Mike, my friend, Nick. So we started a business for a few reasons, but one of them was just to be like, so we could say my colleague and a business partner. I mean, that sounds more official. Like it's just more legit. Mm -hmm. So we started RP and then at some point 
we got enough clients to where we just couldn't take all the clients anymore. And I had, I couldn't take each client load because I had a PhD program uh, stuff to do. And then we started hiring other folks that were at my PhD program because we met, I met a lot of brilliant people that were also getting the PhDs in sport performance. And at some point we got a ton of questions because we were doing things in like a really pretty scientific way. But, you know, people come to you as clients from a variety of other diets and training methods, and they're used to doing weird shit. Like, so for example, one of the questions we always get like, so like what, what's with all these carbs around the workout? Like, are you sure carbs? I'm trying to lose fat. Why am I eating carbs? So there's only so many times you can type out the same response on Gmail until you lose your mind. So it's like, you know what? We're going to write an, an ebook that just describes like what a scientific diet looks like. And, you know, we need a little fancy name. So we called it the Renaissance diet. And once we wrote that book, that was really kind of when we started blowing up because a lot of people read it. Uh, our friend Chad Wesley Smith on our um, uh, training systems, uh, he gave us an opportunity to write some articles for him. People thought those were nice. And then he published our book for us, our first book. And it was a really, really awesome thing where a lot more people got to know the ideas and they were like, oh, I guess this kind of makes sense. So we hired more coaches, blah, blah, blah. And eventually we realized that we could, we had sort of uh, systematized the diet and training process so much that we could do it through uh like templates or an app or something like that so we built the diet templates and the training templates and then we built the diet app which took like forever to build but we finally got a good team and now you can have an rp coach computer tell you what to eat and when and how all in on, a, on your phone uh in your pocket anytime and that's kind of sweet and I, I wrote all the basic logic for that stuff and we're working on a bunch of other sort of versions of that app and other apps so it's sort of like it was never like our plan to take over the world or some shit like that although we are building a giant mechanical octopus to encircle the earth isn't that what all big corporations want in the end that's what we're all trying to do so uh you know our our plan wasn't ever like take over although nick my business partner he's much more vision oriented than me i'm like a a miniature dachshund i see like two feet in front of my face and uh, i just do that so you give me a concept to fuck up and i'll just do that like what's next but Nick had some vision, but our vision was never like to be like, you know, like, oh, we're going to hashtag take over the industry. We're just trying to do a good job because honestly, man, I got really tired of people being ripped off by non-scientific bullshit. And some of it's not even well-intentioned bullshit. Like people would ask us, like, what do you think of this training method? Like, what do you think of like the keto diet and this and that? Like the keto has a place and it's fine. But to think that it's like some kind of golden magic thing is an insanity. And there's so many people out there, like you mentioned, those Instagram influencers that peddle their version of bullshit and it's just not right for so many people and we don't peddle any version of bullshit we say like yeah this is our best interpretation of the evidence and practice give it a shot and maybe it'll work and we don't make bombastic claims like you'll never see any of our ads be like lose all your fat like there's enough of that shit you know like we're never going to be able to compete with it either so we're just trying to do our best i guess so what does a scientific diet look like what is the foundation of it so if i came to you today what would you say if i said mike could you please run me a diet what would be your starting point for like hey start here well, I'd sell you the proprietary herbs that we have. They're very expensive, but they're worth it because they, you know what I'm saying? They get your your chi. Got it. Because you have to have your chi, correct? Um, <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a kind of a hierarchy. So for body composition, if the diet was intended to make you leaner and muscular, we would have sort of an incremental uh, work through various concerns. One is calories. It's the most important thing in the world. Like if you're trying to lose fat, it doesn't really matter what you eat. If your calories are higher than what you burn, it doesn't matter. So the first thing we try to do is set up a decent amount of food for calories. After that, we want to make sure your macro split is reasonable, which means feed you enough protein to meet all the functions, roughly a gram uh, per pound per day. Carbohydrates, which are really determined by how physically active you are and the demands of your training, enough to power you, enough to recover from. 
and then the rest will be fats and there's a minimal level of fats that you for sure have to have and there's a bit of play between play between fats and carbs after that we determine can you still hear me yeah, dude, I hear you perfectly. I'm just, I'm, oh, okay, I'm, I'm smiling because it's like, man, isn't it like we're talking the same language, the exact same? Yeah, 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 sure, sure. And then you yeah. you look at meal timing next, and you know anything between three to four and seven meals per day is fine. You know, if you train many times a day, or more meals is better. A lot of that comes down to preference. But if you're eating like once or twice a day, it's probably not ideal. If you're eating nine or ten times a day, like either you're running a really crazy insulin protocol, or like you're just needlessly stuffing yourself with food uh, around the clock. And then after that. You're, you focus on more or less kind of the last thing, not to say it's the last is importance, it's just logically the last, is to fill in all of those. So you, now you have like meals with exact number of calories and macros per meal and you have them timed out. Now you put in the foods and the food choices are really, really general rough categories. I mean, most of your protein should come from lean sources uh, like lean meats or lean vegan products. Most of your carbohydrates should come from veggies, fruits, and whole grains. And the most of your fats, if you're adding fats on top to fill your fat source, should come from healthy sources like olive oil, canola oil, and uh, natural nut butters and stuff like that. And then voila, you have a fundamental diet that sort of checks all the boxes. And after that, the biggest thing you're concerned with is auto-regulating that diet to make sure that it uh, continues to produce the results you want. So after several weeks, you're, you know, your metabolism might slow down a tad. Mostly your non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, like how much you move around, starts to fall off a little bit. You might want to make another one or two progressive calorie cuts to make sure you're on track. And, and that weighing yourself and tracking your body weight is a real good way to do that. Although I will say that if you're in the realm of enhanced athletics uh, for bodybuilding, that whole tracking weight shit goes pretty much out the window because god knows what's happening at that point but at the end of the day then you use appearance or something like that so it's all about getting a really good standard diet in place with those sort of markers and then essentially you regulate how much fat you're taking in how much carb you're taking in over time to achieve the desired result yeah isn't that the easiest crazy simple explanation right now the one question i will throw at you though is how do you uh, manage stress not necessarily personally but with clients <clears throat> obviously uh, someone's someone's HRV, someone's uh, sympathetic arousal, someone's stress is going to influence caloric burn, caloric energy, energy preference. Um, do you have any uh, inclusions or exclusions, I guess, with respect to someone who tends to be more stressed or anxious or has a hard time managing stress, therefore maybe it leads to binge eating or maybe it leads to anxiety or you know, whatever? Yeah, that's a really good question. Stress is a super, super important thing. So it's kind of like uh, probably two, at least two general categories where we can take this approach from. The first is proactive stress management. Uh, the most important there is just trying to freak out less or organizing your life in such a way that doesn't overwhelm you with responsibilities. Like if you know you're stress prone and you have the option to like take after work salsa dance classes with your girlfriend or not, and you're like in contest prep mode or you're in a serious mode for dieting and you want results, maybe just lay off that shit and go home and relax. Just so you know, like you get scheduling anxiety, like you look at your schedule for the day in the morning, you're like, everything's filled in. That's a thing. And maybe you don't overwhelm yourself. That's a good start. Another one is getting adequate sleep. Not a damn thing in the world you can do to out, to out, to beat out sleep. There's no amount of trend you can take that beats out an inadequate amount of sleep. But it's one of those things where if you have, if you are sleeping enough and if you're not overwhelming yourself with your various life activities, including work, it sets up a real good baseline for having a, a decent amount of stress. Another stress component within that realm is not training too much. 
there's a certain amount of training you can impose on yourself, cardio plus plus weights included, which is just overload, not just physically, but psychologically. It's just too much, like three a days, every day. Nobody lasts through that shit. And then diet, if you push your calories really, really low, it actually acts as an independent stressor, like in addition to everything else. So yeah, you can have all sorts of ideas, like I'm going to lose 2% body fat per week. Like don't do that because it's just a recipe for burning out. So those are proactive. You set them in place and they make sure that your stress doesn't get out of hand as often or as likely or to that degree that it could. Now that you have those, stress will still come up and you have to auto-regulate somehow. Auto-regulating stress means sometimes taking a break, sometimes taking a couple vacation days, sometimes in, in emergency situations, easing up off the diet a little bit, doing a bit, a bit more, usually a bit more clean food just to make sure everything's settled and then you go back into a deficit. And a lot of times um, it can mean training adjustments, including deloads and, and light sessions and so on and so forth to make sure that you're doing the best job on the front end to make sure that your tra- your stress, you're just not in a scenario set up for stress. It's like, you want to be cool. Don't like start out in hell. Okay. But also like in order to cool down, if you overheat, you have to maybe take off layers or put on an ice pack, just the same way with stress. You start off at a normal place, so, something that's not just a recipe for eventual disaster. And then if, and when stress comes up, you have to deal with it in a couple of different ways. Yeah, man. I think in the, in the immediate gratification culture we have, everyone's like, I don't want to go from off season diet to progressing my way into a logical stress-free or minimal stress progression into getting lean. It's like, I want to go from you eating a thousand grams of carbs to zero carbs, 200 True. cardio. Yeah. And that, that's the paradigm that so many people have been perpetuating. And it, it's, it still blows my mind to see how many prep coaches, as soon as somebody starts the 16 weeks out, it's like, all right, you're going to do an hour and a half of cardio. We're going to like carb cycling with zero grams of carbs three days a week. And you're just like, you're an idiot. Like, and then people get six weeks out and they're 12% body fat. I can't lose any fat. So now I'm doing three hours of cardio. It's so common. It blows my mind that people still have a job. Well, if I, if I might ask you a question, do you, have you seen this in the bodybuilding coaching industry where the incentive for any particular coach is to burn their athlete to, into at least one or two good showings and they sort of don't care about long-term versus, yeah. Because that happens like, People will, will be like, oh, like I work with so-and-so coach and the so-and-so coach will share that on his Insta. Like we got super shredded and super jacked and like, yeah, what did you take to get like that? Exactly. And, yeah. and then after that, they're like, you know, the next picture of the athlete is like, hey, I'm in the hospital. They're running some tests, you know, like the famous post IFM show hospital picture. Yeah. And it's almost like a rite of passage. But then like, you know, the coach is never going to share that shit. And the coach just moves on to the next guy because the next guy found out about this coach by seeing his Instagram be like, oh my God, you coach so-and-so, I want to look like that. And the guy just throws infinite amounts of gear and and cardio at them. That's exactly it. And six months later, they're depressed and suicidal and they don't want to train anymore. They don't want to compete. They're fat and they don't know what to do and their hormones are all fucked up. It happens so much, man. And I refuse to take anybody on for less than 12 months anymore. I'm like, I just won't do it. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I'm like, again, I don't take on a lot of people, but anyone I do take on, I'm like, listen, I don't want to do something in three, like any idiot can get you in shape in three months. Like eat a little less, work a little harder, you'll be fine. But that's not the goal. The goal is to become the type of person who can sustain that level of fitness and health long-term. That takes time. We got to develop habits. We got to develop beliefs, identity, all these things that kind of the underlying reality of why you look the way you do and why I look look the way I do. It's not just the day-to-day practice. Yes, that's the habit and the skills, but it's the belief, the identity, that, you know, the day-to-day indoctrination of this, the, these skills and habits, right? And that's the shit that people just overlook. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe 
Share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content. Leave us a review and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive muscle intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. And I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.